Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Texas is not violating a Supreme Court decision. That's not what's happening. Texas is making a very, very clear statement. And that clear statement is, we're going to protect and defend ourselves, kitten. That's what's going to happen. We're going to do it. We're going to do it uh, unabashedly. We're not going to apologize for it. We're not going to clear it with you. We're not interested if you like us. We're not interested if you're our friend. None of it matters. What matters is that we protect the nation. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. And by the way, it is. It is a conversation of protecting the nation while they're protecting themselves. Let's start where where we, we need to start. And let's start with uh, the... The, the, the case, the Supreme Court case ruling against Texas, what did they actually rule? Well, this starts, of course, long before that with whether or not we're actually protecting the nation at the southern border. Is this administration doing anything to protect the country? Most of us would say absolutely not and nowhere near enough. Absolutely not and nowhere near enough. We have got an open, porous border. Uh, my time at, at the border, I, it, it's not been, you know, for forever. I, I haven't been going for weeks and months and years. I've done one visit to the border, which makes it one more visit than Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. I put my hand in the Rio Grande, spoke to Border Patrol agents, spoke to people who work in the areas, understanding the problem and the level of insidiousness uh, of the issue. I have much more to go in my own learning. But there is no doubt that the border is in a worse state today than it was under Donald Trump. To say otherwise is a maddening proposition. It would simply be a lie. And we hear these lies quite a bit. We get these lies from people like Corinne Jean-Pierre. Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, had the audacity to go on and do an interview uh, on CNN. And she, she wants you to believe that the, that the border is not only secure, but it is Republicans getting in the way. Instead of a conversation of, here's the policy we'd like to put in place. Here's the policy we would like to see happen. Here it is, as clear as day, no, 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 no. It's how Republicans are getting in the way of making things happen. It is Republicans who are keeping you from being safe. Of course, this is not true. Of course, this is not true. This is nowhere near true. As a matter of fact, we're all amazed that you're even having the conversation. And then we took a look at, at, at a watch and we said, oh, it's an election year. And all of a sudden... You've got the Democratic Party very, very concerned with the border. But they're not concerned with a solution. Or, And by the way, there's not one. It's multiple pieces. 
You're talking about border security. You're talking about border technology. You're talking about what's going on with actual border patrol. You're talking about where they put their time and focus and energy. You're talking about the labor side of it because you do need the workers. There is a humanitarian crisis when you talk about the sex trafficking and the human trafficking that's taking place. And here's how Corinne Jean-Pierre wants to treat you. It doesn't seem like they've gotten it. Uh, They now are allowed to cut down razor wire. Some Democrats are saying the president needs to federalize uh, the Texas National Guard. So look, something that could happen. I mean, look, I'll say this, uh, you know, the Border Patrol agents are now, as you said, allowed to cut through the wire because of what the Supreme Court has laid out. It's it's unfortunate that we had to go there. It's unfortunate that there is a governor in Texas, Governor Abbott, who has politicized this issue of what's happening on the border. And it's not making people's lives safer. It's actually making it harder for law enforcement at the at the border to do their job. And so we have been very clear. We want to make sure we get something done at the border. That's why we've been having these conversations with Senate Republicans and Democrats for the past several weeks to come up with a bipartisan. The past several weeks, not the past several years when this has been a problem the past several weeks election season everybody and a great and and is it is it not just i really should have a studio audience i swear i really should she wasn't kidding by the way about those people who think that um there should be a a federal takeover this was a congressman joaquin castro and he uh stated a governor greg abbott is using the Texas National Guard to obstruct and create chaos at the border. If Abbott is defying yesterday's Supreme Court ruling, POTUS, President of the United States, needs to establish sole federal control of the Texas National Guard now. Now, he's got a series of confused things going on there uh, regarding uh, the National Guard versus uh, Texas State Guard. These are different uh, entities. But go back to what it is Corinne Jean-Pierre said, and this will go back to how we started. That Governor Greg Abbott of Texas is absolutely not defying the Supreme Court. The decision, a 5-4 decision, stated that the Biden administration can cut through the razor wire. Now, if if you ask where I am on that decision, I, I would argue that I am not in favor of anything the Biden administration has done with the border. But as I was a guy who said during the Trump years, the president decides immigration policy. And I'm not interested in changing that unless there's some some congressional action to change it. I won't listen to judges say Trump couldn't do X and Trump couldn't do Y, but Biden can do A, B, and C. This goes to the idea of DACA, for example. Here's uh, Barack Obama with, with a pen, and he's like, all right, deferred action for childhood arrivals. We'll just change immigration policy like this. Donald Trump wants to change it and say, let's get rid of DACA. And some judge says no. With all due respect, that judge should be told to kiss off. Who cares what that judge has to say? That judge doesn't matter in the slightest. Tell that judge to go raise an army. The president, elected by the people, determines immigration policy. And I believe that to be true for the current president as well, even if I don't like what it is he's doing and I don't like him. And I don't. On, on a, even on a personal level, I just find him to be uh, an abhorrent cat. The ruling said that the Border Patrol can cut through the razor wire. The ruling did not state that the Abbott administration in Texas could not add razor wire. 
Now, if you're like, well, Tony, with all due respect, calm yourself down. Uh, as as uh, the Sopranos would say, put a little fizzy water on your head and relax. You're wrong. The court said what it said. It did not stop Greg Abbott from protecting the state. As a matter of fact, Greg Abbott has been very clear that his plan is to protect the state. Here, here's his statement right here for, for, for all uh, to, to, to read. It states, amongst other things, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and other visionaries who wrote the Constitution foresaw that states should not be left to the mercy of a lawless president who does nothing to stop external threats like cartels smuggling millions of illegal immigrants across the border. This is why the framers included both Article 4, Section 4, which promises the federal government shall protect each state against invasion, and Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3. Now, no one in America, no radio host in America, has discussed Article 4, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution more than me. I want the credit where it is dang well deserved. No one has said it more than me. Article 4, Section 4 says that every state in the union will be guaranteed a Republican form of government. And yes, that government will protect the states from invasion. It does not say it will protect the states from regulated armies where everyone's wearing the same uniform and marching like redcoats did. When you have single able-bodied males crossing the border, it's an invasion. When you have this. If you are smart enough, you will know who I am. But you are really not smart enough to know who I am. But soon you're going to know who I am. Very and the question of whether or not that guy was uh, a guy who spent 12 years in prison for trying to do arms trafficking in Azerbaijan, maybe being successful at it. That guy cannot be in the United States. Of course you can consider that an invasion. Anybody who would make that level of threat, veiled or however you want to describe it, without question, would, the, the border is not safe. That can be seen as an invasion. As a matter of fact, I believe all of it can. But what about Article 1, Section 10? I like the way Greg Abbott's thinking here. I like the cut of his jib. As the expression goes, Article 1, Section 10. Oh, the Constitution is a fascinating document. Let me read it. No state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power or engage in war unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. <laughs> Kitten, let me tell you, that's pretty good stuff. Uh, what, what Greg Abbott is, is arguing is that uh, certainly uh, if you don't want to agree to this being an invasion, one can agree that there is imminent danger that will not allow of delay. And it is his responsibility, as per the Constitution of the United States of America, to protect not only his state, but the country.
I believe this to be an absolutely winning argument. Not only a winning argument because I so believe it, but a winning argument because he is not acting from an emotional place. He laid it out, did Greg Abbott. He laid it out with clarity, utilizing the Constitution, utilizing his powers uh, as a governor and recognizing that states have rights. Because they do. States have rights. And there have been a lot of people backing him up. The governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, putting out on X, enough is enough. Our southern border is in crisis thanks to the Biden administration's refusal to do their job. Greg Abbott and the state of Texas have our full support. Christy Nome out of South Dakota. Greg Abbott is exactly right to invoke Texas's constitutional authority to defend itself. The Biden administration has created a national security crisis and put Americans in danger, writes Governor Nome. Their failure is an unconstitutional dereliction of duty. South Dakota has been proud, as she writes it, to help Governor Abbott's efforts to secure our border. Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, I stand with Governor Abbott. The House will do everything in its power to back him up. The next step, holding Secretary, Secretary the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, accountable. Kevin Stitt of Oklahoma. Oklahoma stands with Texas. Governor Gianforte of Montana. Governor Greg Abbott is doing what POTUS won't by refusing to act President Biden is inviting cartels, illegal drugs, and human trafficking into the United States. We must secure the southern border. Glenn Youngkin of Virginia. Virginia stands with Texas. Greg Abbott is doing the job Joe Biden and his borders are, that would be uh, the Vice President Kamala Harris, refused to do to secure our border. The Biden administration has turned every state into a border state. We must stop the flow of fentanyl, save lives, and secure our southern border. And Governor Ron DeSantis, out of Florida. The Supreme Court is siding with the Biden administration against Texas by allowing the federal government to take down razor wire on the border. Texas is trying to enforce our laws and uphold our sovereignty while the federal government is disregarding the law and ignoring its responsibility to protect our borders. What an upside-down world. Whether governors like it or don't like it, This is officially the litmus test. I'm not a litmus test guy, but you're not willing to make a statement as a governor here? You don't want to talk about the border? What about the idea of states' rights? You're going to tell me there are governors who won't actually stand up for the rights of their state to be able to protect their citizens? In in my state, uh, Indiana... Uh, I've I've asked the question uh, to Governor Holcomb, Eric Holcomb. We await his uh, decision on this, and and I keep uh, checking out his uh, his feed here. I keep checking out his Twitter feed here to see where he is uh, on, on the subject, to see if he has posted anything uh, on the subject. I uh, give it a little uh, refresh uh, right there, and uh, nope. Nope. Oh, a lot of investment coming to the state of Indiana. I think you could be cheering that all you will and all you want. No problem at all. But uh, no mention 
of the southern border. Huh. Well, that's going to be a problem. And certainly anybody running for governor in any state, this is a good question that's going to be asked. Greg Abbott is not violating the Supreme Court ruling. And after all, if he did, what could they do about it? I mean, that's a question you should ask yourself. It would take the Biden administration doing something about it. And what are they going to do about it? They can cut the razor wire and Greg Abbott can put it back up. Maybe the answer is policy and a recognition that borders matter and we need a border. And the people who want no borders, the rabid squad and the other progressives need to be told to sit down. They're wrong, and they have to be told. And Greg Abbott is right, and governors should let him know that he's right. As for what my governor, Eric Holcomb, is going to do, I ain't got a clue. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. One of the big stories from yesterday is how Jon Stewart is coming back. He's coming back to The Daily Show. He's going to be an executive producer, and he's going to be the host one day a week. All of a sudden, he's Rachel Maddow. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find us on Rumble. Find us on YouTube. Find everything on X at TonyKatz.com. He's going to be the Monday host. They're going to have fill-in hosts, a uh, rotating cast, Tuesday through Thursday. And then I, I don't know what they're going to do on Friday. I, I, I guess that's their day of rest. Um, John Stewart, undoubtedly, for his time at The Daily Show, for a generation, was where they got news. It was absolutely where they got news. No question uh, about it. Um. And then John Stewart left for a while, and he did some good things in terms of pushing for legislation. You can agree or disagree, but you, you know he he was out there trying to get some things done. And then he started this show at HBO, The Problem with John Stewart. And in that show, you saw that this guy, who was supposed to be clever, and and smarter than the room, and uh, a man who. Um, had had a focus. He he had turned in, turned had wanted to be funny, focus on funny. He had turned into this uh, ridiculous, ridiculous kind of concoction of of progressivism and and beta maleness. That that's that's exactly correct. I mean, I I couldn't come up with a better description than the description I just came up with. And that show did nothing. And that show went nowhere. Absolutely nowhere. So now that he comes back to The Daily Show, why am I to think that I'm going to get the same Jon Stewart that I had from The Daily Show? And and I didn't agree with him there, but at least he was funny. We're not getting that guy. We're not getting this guy who is um, at, at the top of his game. We're not getting this guy who's got a strong mind and a strong sense of, of self. No, what we're going to get is a 
This uber progressive, please like me guy. This show is not going to go anywhere, and this show will be off the air soon. Right? So just when you think you have a basic understanding of, of, of where the economy is, that you saw inflation trend down and then you saw it pick back up, the consumer price index at 3.9%, that is not the target rate of 2% that the Federal Reserve is, is looking for. That's double, Kitten, double where uh, the Federal Reserve wants to be. You're like, okay, things are not going so great. And then you take a general mood. Uh, that that exists w- within the country. This general mood of things are not good. We are not in a happy, strong place. This economy is problematic and dangerous and has no end in sight from being problematic and dangerous. When you saw the New Hampshire primaries take place, uh, of course they asked people, hey, what, what is your thought on this? And what is your thought on that? This was CBS News. And and this was what they found out. Yeah, so people are really uh, bummed out about the economy here in New Hampshire, even uh, if the overall big picture numbers are going in the right direction. And even if people's own personal experiences in general are going okay, there's a lot of gloom. And one of the reasons is food prices, for example, generally going up. And we talked to a bunch of people outside of a grocery store in Derry, New Hampshire. We couldn't find anybody feeling good about the economy. And that, that's just human nature. Psychologically, you go into a store, if you're paying more for items that you get every week, that really sticks with you. It really annoys you. It gets you down. People were upset about it. And so are they making it? Yeah, they're making it. But are they bothered by the fact that frozen OJ has gone up double digits and that steak on Friday is up double digits? Absolutely. And that's really driving people's perspective on things. So that was out, out of California. Me, I'm Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Dr. Matt Will joins us, economist at the University of Indianapolis, because with that backdrop, This was today's news, Dr. Will. The U.S. economy grew faster than expected. You're talking about a GDP, gross domestic product, of 3.3%, which in any economy or or an average economy, we'd say that's that's just fine. That's some solid growth. But we saw inflation tick back up. There are now indicators that inflation is ticking back down. Talk to me about the numbers. What do they say? Oh, goodness. There's so much to cover here. Let me first of all say that this is a good number. There's a lot of good numbers in this report. I am not going to say that there's any, well, there are a few things that are concerning to me, but overall 3.3 is great. But why is it down? That's the most important thing. And let me say what the headline should be. The headline should be Biden is losing the war on the economy because the economy is looking good, but not because of Biden. The number one thing in this report that causes the, G- the GDP to go up is lower inflation. Now, right before we went on the air, you mentioned to me, well, the other reports say it's double what it should be, and you just mentioned that. That's true, but in this report, this report says that the, G- the inflation last quarter was 1.5%. That's dramatically lower than what we were talking about just a couple weeks ago and below the target for the Fed. That's because there's different inflation reports coming out of the government. This one contradicts the others. This one says inflation is good. So that's one factor. Can we, you want me to go into the other ones? You want to chat with inflation? You have to go into all of them. There is, 
There is no level of, of wonkification that, that we can't walk down because this gets confusing. You know, how, how uh, government agencies and others manipulate data to their benefit as opposed to yes. what we know when we're the people, you know, just like you saw from that CBS reporting, yep. at the store seeing meat being double in price and other things being double in price. Well, according to this report, not the CPI, not the PPEI, not the CPE, all the other ones that say inflation still double what it should be. This one says it's down. So in that respect, Biden is losing the war because Powell is winning the war. Powell's trying to reduce inflation and Biden's trying to increase it from spending. The second bad thing is that the GDP is up because government spending is up 4.3% for the year. That is not a good reason for government uh, for the GDP to go up is because government's spending more money. Next, consumer spending is up um, 2.8% in this report. That's below the national average of the GDP, but it's pulling, you know, it's causing some juice in the economy. That's not a good thing. Why is it bad? Because credit card debt, highest spending in history, according to the top banks in the country, highest delinquency that we've seen in recent memory. Third reason, and this GDP report says it, people are saving less money. We've talked about this before. Again, in the fourth quarter, people are dipping into their savings to spend money. And this great holiday season that everyone was bragging about, the fourth quarter was worse than the third quarter as far as holiday spending. Now it gets now it gets stupid. Talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, all we heard in fourth quarter spend was about how people were spending more, but no one answered the question, were they spending more and getting more? Or were they spending more for the the, the average things that they were going to buy? So they bought less, but they spent more to actually get less. That question never got uh, fully, fully answered. But but I want to go back to a, a little bit of, of what you were getting into there. Um, the, the, the winning, the whole winning the war com- conversation, if the fight is between Biden and Powell, Biden spending versus and, and those programs that engage spending versus Powell working the interest rates and, and Powell also Biden versus capitalism. I want to talk about that, too. This is this is exactly where I was going to go. Don't steal my thunder, sir. That's just my rude. apologies. Uh, it is that we're the ones who end up losing because in this conversation, this almost conversation in the ether about where the economy is i i don't mind a 3.3 gdp i'd be very happy if that showed the country is really starting to kick 3.3 is a wonderful number for a country with the economic output of the united states but the american people aren't feeling any of this we're still stuck in it we still see the closings we see the higher rents for example and what that's doing to the restaurant industry closing people out the higher labor costs even if you can get people to show up you're paying the higher labor labor costs even though they don't they don't always show up that is putting the squeeze uh, on on hospitality we're seeing less therefore you're seeing more crowding of those places those costs going up we're taking the hit on every side yet wall street seems to want to play a game of Things are great. So talk to me about the, the, the part two of this, which is uh, Biden versus capitalism. Well, the reason Wall Street sees things as great is because Wall Street is shifting their focus away from Washington, which I've said for years they need to do. Stop looking at Washington and look at Main Street, look at manufacturing. Private investment was up 10% in the third quarter. That's an amazing amount. 
Biden has nothing to do with private investment. In fact, he tries to punish companies. He tries to punish them for reinvesting their money. He wants to increase their taxes. He wants to punish them for trying to do stock buybacks. He wants to destroy capitalism, but capitalism says, no, we're going to do AI. We're going to reinvent our companies. We're going to invest. In addition, all the restrictions he's putting on businesses, exports were up 6.3% in the fourth quarter. So capitalism is saying, here, Biden, you're trying to harm us, ban our business from exporting, regulate us more. We're going to export more. We're going to invest more. So Wall Street's looking to itself and companies and saying, look, we're doing good things. We're growing the economy. They're winning the battle against Biden. Powell is winning the battle against Biden. For the American consumer, we're lucky Biden is losing most of the battles. But as you said, you go to the store. You're still getting less for the same dollar. Let's talk where we are losing the battle, where the American consumer is clearly losing the battle. And you brought it up earlier. Third quarter credit card debt was one point zero eight trillion dollars. Now, I have not seen yet data on fourth quarter credit card debt, but you started bringing up the concept of defaults. Talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. Can you talk to me about the data you're seeing about defaults? Do we have data on fourth quarter debt, and at what moment, well, if that moment hasn't already come, are people ringing the bell saying this is completely unsustainable, the crash is coming if not here? Well, you know what? We don't have the data because the banks aren't releasing it. They released anecdotal information. So the top four banks in the country said they have seen record level of delinquencies in credit card and debt payments that occurred in the fourth quarter. So we're waiting for the actual numbers on that, but I wonder if they're just afraid to tell us because it's that bad. And then this report does tell us that we're saving less money. The savings rate dropped 0.2%. We're saving less money. And again, anecdotal from the um, big banks, because they haven't released the actual numbers, they say highest credit card debt in history, higher delinquencies than we've seen, savings rates below pre-pandemic levels. All of those things point to what you just said, Tony, that the consumer is credit crunched, which we've talked about the credit crunch before. They're strapped for money. They're dipping into their savings just to make ends meet on a daily basis. If the consumer is under a credit crunch, and we have discussed this in multiple ways. So, for example, you want to go buy a a used car, but the bank will not lend you money to buy a used car because they're concerned of your ability to pay it back. And then when you go to the used car lot, they don't even exist anymore because they weren't able to get loans to purchase vehicles from the auction because they feared that the consumer coming to the now empty lot wouldn't be able to pay back the loan. So it hit in, in, in both ways. It would seem to me, uh, a a novice, uh, Dr. Matt Will, uh, that a credit crunch would be disastrous for everybody on Wall Street and Midwest Main Street. Do I have this wrong? Okay, you're you're kind of uh, naive to say you're naive. That is incorrect. You're very you described it very well. That's exactly what we're what's happening right now. And the credit crunch to go a a little bit further is we have not yet seen the volume of defaults rolling into, let's say, commercial real estate. Think of all those empty office buildings in the downtown in a big city. Those office buildings were on lease for a long time. People are not going back to work into the office. They are, but not as much. It's not going to go back to pre-pandemic level. So what if you've loaned money for someone to buy a building? They're going to default on that, and we're starting to see those default rates increase. So the next big tsunami coming is the commercial real estate credit card default. 
And that's going to be the, the next iteration of the crunch. And th- real, that's a big real thing. estate credit default. So it, it was, I think the Wall Street Journal had a piece about mm-hmm. this because we did discuss it. There's going to be a before 2028, a tremendous amount, Dr. Matt, well, economist at the University of Indianapolis of loans that come to maturity. And when those loans come to maturity and you can't refinance at a better rate or even uh, the same rate, you're going to be paying far more than you bought that property for. There are going to be a fair amount of people more than convinced to give up the property, considering that people still aren't coming back to the office in numbers that make those properties worthwhile. How does the commercial real estate market and that impending coming clearly looming issue affect us on Midwest Main Street? We saw it in March. Remember the bank crisis we talked about? And I said, it's not going away. It's just, it's just going down a little bit. We're just letting it, you know, it's going to sleep, but it's going to rear its ugly head. Most of the loans made by local regional banks are commercial loans. They sell their mortgages. They don't keep your mortgage. They sell it to somebody else. So the loans on their books are these long-term commercial loans. And when those things come due, as you just mentioned in the report you, you met, you stated, those things are going to cause the banks to have a crisis. And I believe that the bank crisis is not yet gone. And I keep talking about this in my speeches because, you know, people say, oh, March, it was here, it was massive, it was fixed. No, it was just subdued for a moment. It will be back. And what does it look like when it's back? How do we see it? Like, what is the indicator for people? I don't mean to ask a question on a question. What's the indicator for the layman where they go, yep, time to hunker it all down um when your regional banks go bankrupt now i'm not predicting that there are solid regional banks okay we've mentioned that before the regional banks especially in indiana are fantastically safe from interest rate risk but where they're not safe from is default risk which means if someone doesn't pay back their loan but 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 wouldn't that argument also apply to large banks you could say well they've got more cash so so they they have a safer position but they also deal with bigger loans if one one could ostensibly argue so doesn't the problem also apply there it does but not as much because the regional banks are more on a percentage basis most of their portfolio is in local regional construction, commercial loans. The national banks have much more. They like have bonds to Coca-Cola or bonds to IBM. So they have a different portfolio structure, but all those local banks, your hospitals, you know, your, your apartment complexes, they go to the local bank to get those loans. And so that's why there's more exposure to the regional and local banks. Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. The CEO of Toyota. I should say it's the chairman of Toyota. He's making sense perfect sense and what he is saying is that customers not regulations or politics should make that decision what decision whether or not you buy an electric vehicle tony katz tony katz today good to be with you find everything over at tonykatz.com stating the quote i've continued to say what i see as reality if regulations are created based on ideals It is regular users who are the ones who suffer. 
you cannot force people to purchase electric vehicles. You have to put it out into the market, and then you have to let them decide. And this is a world-class position to take from Toyota, who's really focused on hybrid technology. Hybrid makes very, very good sense. Electric is a harder road. Now, some full disclosure. So I have a sponsor locally in Indianapolis, uh, Andy Moore Ford, uh, Ford dealership. Wonderful, wonderful people. Chris Houston, the entire gang over there, wonderful. And so I have driven uh, their their Mach-E, the electric Mustang. I don't know why they call it the Mustang. It was an incredible drive, incredible. And I'm currently driving, and I have been even through the massive cold snap in the Midwest, um, uh, the Ford F-150 Lightning. Now, if you ask me if I think that truck is great, that truck is unbelievable. It is unbelievable. It's the XLT. It's not a super fancy trim package. It's a good trim package. Um, it is super comfortable. It is easy to do everything. It's got a 280-mile range, 260-mile range. Um, and let me tell you, it was a pleasure not to use a stop at a gas station during that cold. But absolutely cold-affected battery. I won't lie. And you already know that Ford is cutting production of the thing because you can't force people into buying an electric vehicle. The cost it doesn't make sense for them. I can argue because I, I work at, at home, right? The whole studio is at home. The new studio is, is getting built. Everything I do is here. I've been able to, to, to build this world around this. For me, as weird as it sounds... An electric vehicle makes sense to the lifestyle. So now you got to find somebody who has the cash and you got to find somebody who has the lifestyle to make it work. That's a niche. That's a. You can't force it on people with regulation. Now I'm hoping that the Biden administration gets the message. Really, what I'm hoping is that uh, we win the next election, sweep the House and the Senate, get the presidency, and stop this madness. This is Tony Katz today.